I want to invite you to um, take out of your worship program the message download, which is a folded um, sheet of paper, which is an outline of what I'm going to talk about this morning. And as you go along, as we go along, you can uh, follow along and um, take notes on that. And you can use it a little bit later to um, review, which I know you'll just run home and do. Come on, folks. I know. I mean, I need a little bit of help here. Gosh, tough group. I'm really excited this morning to um, begin a brand new series of messages uh, called Wild Goose Chase. As we uh, end January, as we begin February, we'll be um, diving into um, six of these messages called Wild Goose Chase. And uh, Wild Goose Chase, as um, Melissa was mentioning in the very beginning of our worship time together, is actually um, taken from a book. It's an inspiration from a book by a guy named Mark Batterson, who's the pastor of National Community Church in Washington, D.C., who, um, who wrote this book. And um, it forms the inspiration for these messages that we'll be doing, these six messages and you might think to yourself, oh gosh, you know, a wild goose chase, that is a peculiar name for a series of messages. What in the world is all that about? And so in order to explain that, I'm going to let Mark explain that. And um, he's going to share with you a little bit about where that whole thing came from. He's going to tell you a little bit about the inspiration for his book and thus the inspiration for these messages. Let's take a look at that video. Hi, my name is Mark Batterson, author of Wild Goose Chase, and I want to say thanks for taking a couple of moments and letting me tell you about what Wild Goose Chase is all about. I'm actually in Celtic country at the ancient ruins of a church that stood here in the 7th century. It was about the 5th century that Christianity made its way into Britain and Scotland and Ireland and the Celtic people had a very primal experience with God, a love of nature, and a love of God's creation. And I think for those reasons, they had an interesting name for the Holy Spirit. They called him On God Gloss, or the Wild Goose. And, and when you first hear that name, it, it almost sounds a little sacrilegious at first earshot, but I love the connotations. A wild goose cannot be tracked or tame. There's an air of mystery or a hint of unpredictability or an element of danger that surrounds a wild goose. And, and I think it, it really is a great description of what it means to live a spirit-led life. It feels like a wild goose chase. You're not going to know where you're going most of the time. And for many of us, that causes tremendous circumstantial uncertainty and, and, and anxiety. But, but here's the thing circumstantial uncertainty goes by another name and we call it adventure and and i just wonder if our institutionalized version of christianity hasn't clipped the wings of the wild goose and if we aren't missing out on what god originally intended i know that in my own personal life if you take the holy spirit out of my life my life spells boring but if you add them into the equation of your life all bets are off you never know who you're going to meet, what you're going to do, where you're going to go. And, uh, and that is the adventure of the wild goose chase. And so I think as I sit here today, um, it, it symbolizes, you know, what is this kind of institutionalized Christianity that, that can be pretty innocuous and, and it's safe and it's predictable and it's civilized. And yet I think there's something deep down inside that longs for something 
that's more primal, that's more adventurous, that, that really is more in touch with who God is. And, and so Wild Goose Chase is an invitation into the adventure of chasing the wild goose. And uh, I wanna encourage you to uh, pick up a copy, to read through it and allow the God to lead you into the spiritual adventure of following him. There's a verse in the Bible, in John's story of Jesus' life, in John's Gospel, it's the 10th chapter, it's verse 10, which I think is such a, a key verse for us as followers of, of Jesus Christ. And there in John chapter 10, verse 10, it says this, A thief comes only to rob, kill, and destroy. And this is Jesus talking. But I came so that everyone would have life and have it in its fullest. You see, the Christian faith teaches us that Jesus came to bring us life. Now, most of us, as we understand the, the Christian faith and the life that Jesus comes to, to bring us, understand that to mean eternal life, that when we all die, if we belong to Jesus, if we've had faith in Jesus, that we're going to get life in the next world to come. And that's very true. Jesus came to bring that life. But Jesus also came to bring life in this life, that it just wasn't about getting a ticket punch so we could go to heaven, but it was about having full and abundant life in this life. And so the Christian faith teaches that. The problem comes, though, as William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson in the movie Braveheart, says, every man dies, not every man lives. Every man dies, not every man lives. The problem, church, is that some of us begin to die long before our physical death. We begin to die long before our physical death. The problem is, is that we live in a community that's filled with people that we work with, that we go to school with, that we eat with, that we play with, who are dying and do not know the life that Jesus can bring. And we ourselves, and those that we live with and eat with and work with and go to school with, we may have experienced this life at one point, this great and abundant life that Jesus comes to bring, but yet now it's a flicker. It's a mere flicker of that great flame that once burned that was the passion and the life that Jesus came to bring. Now some of us are not experiencing that life and we're doing more dying than living because maybe we have had some painful experience in our life, and it sapped the life out of us. And some of us are not experiencing that life that Jesus came to bring because we are broken. We have something from our past that has broken us. Some of us aren't experiencing that life that Jesus came to bring because we've experienced loss. But yet there's still another reason, perhaps a more subtle reason, that we're not experiencing that life. A subtle reason that saps the very life out of us that Jesus came to bring. Some of us have lost this abundant life or we haven't even started living it because we are like a caged animal that has no way out. We are stuck. We are stuck in what might be called the cage of responsibility. We're stuck in the cage of responsibility. Here's what I mean. 
We've allowed all the responsibilities of life to sap the very life out of us. In many cases, what has happened is that day-to-day responsibilities of life have numbed us, have insulated us from the life and the passion that Jesus Christ offers to us. That life and that passion that might have been inside of us when we first became believers. That life and that passion that might have been in us as we lived our life. But somewhere along the line, day-to-day responsibilities, all that we have to do, sap the very life out of us, that very life that Jesus promised to bring in John 10, 10. Do you ever feel like you're actively dying? Or do you feel like you're actively living? If you feel like you're actively dying, maybe you've been caught in a cage of responsibility. Maybe your day-to-day responsibilities are sucking the very life out of you. You know, it's kind of funny how responsibilities have a way of sneaking up on us. Seems that, you know, at one point in our lives, we have little worry. We don't worry about what's going to be for dinner because that's provided for us. We don't worry about where we're going to live because that's provided for us. We don't have much to worry about but ourselves. But then all of a sudden, one day we wake up and bam, we have all kinds of responsibilities. All of a sudden, we have a responsibility. We have this thing called a job. And we have a responsibility to go to this job so that we can earn money, so that we can take care of the responsibility of the roof over our head, and we can pay our bills, because if we don't pay our bills, people are going to start calling. We have these responsibilities. We have these responsibilities, perhaps, of these little people that run around, and we wonder why they keep calling us mom and dad, but we have responsibility over them. We have all of these responsibilities and so much more. Now, let me say this. This stage of life, growing up and becoming responsible, is so important. It's an important part of all of our lives as we grow as human beings. I'm not down on responsibilities, and I'm not calling you to be irresponsible per se. But what I'm saying is this, that while I think Jesus calls us to be responsible people, I don't think Jesus ever intended that our day-to-day routine responsibilities would suck the very lifeblood out of us that he came to bring. There's a place in the Bible, Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus has called a man to come and to follow him. And the man says to Jesus, I will come and follow you, Jesus, but first let me go back and bury my father, and then I will come and follow you. And Jesus turns to the man and he says, let the dead bury the dead. Now that's one of those passages, if you've ever heard it before, that just makes your mind think, what in the world did he mean? Let the dead bury the dead. And there's all kinds of interpretations out there, but one of the interpretations of this passage is that maybe that man who Jesus was calling to come and follow him was using his responsibility, the responsibility he had to bury his father as an excuse. Maybe Jesus saw this man's smoke screen, that he was using his responsibility to bury his father, a legitimate responsibility, all of us would say, I'm sure, but maybe he was using that responsibility to keep from fulfilling the greatest responsibility ever, following Jesus. See, responsibilities are not bad, lest they prevent us from the greatest responsibility of all, 
following Jesus. And I think if we're all honest, if we're all honest as well, there are times when we let the day-to-day responsibilities prevent us from following Jesus and thereby prevent us from receiving the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us. You know, it might be as simple as, I have too much to do this Sunday before work starts again on Monday. I have this, this, and that, and that. And then I forgot about that, and i got to do that too. And gosh, it's raining, and I had such a hard day yesterday. I think I will neglect to go to worship the one who has created me, the one who has promised to give me abundant life, and I will do my day-to-day responsibilities because I'm stuck, church, in the cage of responsibility. That's what it looks like to make excuses, to use our day-to-day responsibilities as an excuse not to follow Jesus. You know, or maybe it's something bigger than that. That's kind of small. Maybe it's, you know, we use our day-to-day responsibilities as an excuse not to follow what Jesus has called us to do. You know, so when Jesus lays something on our heart to, you know, go on a mission trip or to adopt a child or to write a check or to go serve at the homeless shelter or do whatever, we say, I can't do that because after all, who would do all this? Though Jesus Christ has called us to do something, we make excuses because we have all of these responsibilities. That's where responsibilities become toxic. That's where they become acidic. See, Jesus doesn't intend that these day-to-day responsibilities, which we all have to do if we admit it, would come in the way of following him because he is the greatest responsibility. I think we can sometimes use day-to-day responsibilities in our lives as an excuse. Well, it seems to me, church, that if we're going to be set free from the cage of responsibility, where our, whereby our day-to-day responsibilities overwhelm us so much that we neglect to follow Jesus, our first responsibility, it seems to me that we need to do at least two things. The first thing that we need to do to break free out of this cage of responsibility is we have to identify what our God-ordained passion is. We have to identify that thing that God has specifically called and wired us and designed us to do or to be. The second thing we have to do then is once we've determined what God has called us and wants us and wired us to be, is then to act on it. It's to actually do it. Now to help us out in that and to wrap our minds around how it is that we can, number one, identify our God-ordained passion, number two, act upon it, so that we can break out of the cage of responsibility and receive the abundant life Jesus came to bring. I want to look in the Old Testament, in the first two-thirds of our Bible, about halfway through. There's a book there called Nehemiah, and I want to look at Nehemiah's life. We're going to look at the first chapter of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakiah. It came to pass in the month of Shelev, in the 20th year, as I was in the Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judea, and and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. 
So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out of the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these, your, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to, who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was, for I was the king's cupbearer. Let me give you a little bit of background about who Nehemiah was. There's no way I can tell you the whole story, but just let me give you a little bit of background. In 586 B.C., a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judea, the land of the Jews, God's people. And he took many of the Jewish people back to his own country, into exile, into a place called Babylon, which we know today as modern-day Iraq. But by 538 B.C., through some international politics, the Jews were allowed to return back home to their homeland, to Judea. But it was a slow return. They didn't all come back at one time. They kind of trickled back to their, to their homeland. And so some of the Jews went back to the homeland, back to Judah. But Nehemiah stayed with the king in Babylon and Iraq. And we pick up the story with Nehemiah around 445 B.C. And what we hear in the story is that Nehemiah learns that the wall of Jerusalem... The wall of the great city of God is in total disrepair. And the significance of that is this. For an ancient city such as Jerusalem, the wall was its protection. They built a wall around it to protect it from invading armies. And so God's city, Jerusalem, was left defenseless. And so it's left to a cupbearer in Babylon who receives a God-ordained passion to go and to repair the broken walls, to rebuild the walls. Now, against all odds, and this is the short version, Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem, if we were to read on throughout the book of Nehemiah, and he rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem and goes on to serve as the governor of Jerusalem for more than a decade. Here's the remarkable thing I want you to notice about Nehemiah's story. It's how God puts a passion on his heart. Now, we don't know a whole lot of, about Nehemiah, but we know this about Nehemiah. One is he must have been a pretty smart guy because after all, he became the governor of Jerusalem. So he must have had some leadership ability, some smarts. We also know that he must have been trusted because the cupbearer for the king, you know, the one that brought him his wine and his milk and his orange juice, that he had to be trusted because, you know, the cupbearer could slip a little something in and there's no more king. And so Nehemiah was, was very trusted. He was trustworthy. 
And he goes back and against all odds repairs that wall after he gets this God-ordained passion. But it all starts with that passion. I wonder, have you ever felt a God-ordained passion that was strong enough to lift you out of the cage of responsibility, to break out of your day-to-day routine and actually do something? Have you ever felt so strong about something you just had to do it, that come what may, that you were going to do it? Have you ever asked God, God, what do you want out of my life? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? Have you ever discovered, have you ever defined the passion that God has for you? How do you do that, you might ask, if you've never done that? If you haven't identified your passion, you might say, how do I do that and how do I know it comes from God? I challenge you to think about it like this. What is it that makes your heart break? What is it that makes you pound your fist on the table? What is it that makes you angry? What is it that makes you smile? What is it that brings forth raw emotions for you? As you begin to answer that question and get behind that question, then the passion that God has for your life, the God-ordained passion will begin to be revealed to you and you will break out of the cage of responsibility and you will begin to experience the life that Jesus promised to give you. Now, here's the thing to remember when it comes to this stuff, when it comes to identifying this God-ordained passion in our life. God is the one who gives the passion. He's the one that gives the call. And you never know where or when God is going to do that. You know, it might be after you read a book. It might be a news report that you catch that makes you angry. It might be a song you hear that makes you smile. It might be a person you meet that causes you to pound your fists on the table. There's all kinds of different ways that God works, and God works through all kinds of different people. For Nehemiah, it was a conversation he had. Remember, one of those Jewish people that had been back home came back, and Nehemiah said, what's happening in Jerusalem? And the man told him, He said, the wall is in disrepair. It's been burnt down. It's crumbling. And out of that conversation, God put on Nehemiah's heart a divinely ordered passion, a God-ordained passion. You see, all of that comes from God. We can merely put ourselves in a position to receive that. I suggest that we receive that and put ourselves in a position to receive that when we are regularly praying, regularly in God's Word, when we are regularly worshiping, when we are regularly serving, it comes from God, but we can create a condition where we hear from God. Now, if we want to experience life as Jesus intended it, if we want to break out of the cage of responsibility, we must not only identify what this God-ordained passion is, but then we have to act on it. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did after he learned that the wall was in disrepair. We're going to hear from Nehemiah chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artorex, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. 
Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? When the king said to me, then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you, I ask that you send me to Judea, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So here's Nehemiah, the, the cupbearer to the king, and he's ser- serving the wine to the king, and he looks sad. And the king says, what in the world is wrong with you, Nehemiah? You're not sick. What's your issue? And Nehemiah, though he's afraid, the Bible says, though he's terrified, makes the request of the king, let me go back to Jerusalem to repair the walls, to build back the city. See, Nehemiah acted on it. He acted on what God had laid upon his heart. He didn't just say, oh, great, I'll do that someday. But first, let me get my kids raised. He didn't say, you know, God has given this for me to do, but I first have to finish this. He didn't say, God has called me to break the wall of Jerusalem. I have to go bury my father. He didn't say, God forbid that I had a rough week and I am tired and so I can't do what you want me to do, God. Heck no. Nehemiah acted upon it. He said, let me go back to Jerusalem. Let me go back and repair the walls. Nehemiah left his good job. He left what he had known for so long and he followed the passion that God put on his heart. He left the day-to-day responsibilities of being the cupbearer. He burst free out of the cage of responsibility. And he went back and he rebuilt that wall. And I would dare say he experienced life as God intended it. Stephen Covey, who writes about leadership and business and such things like that, talks about sometimes how we, especially as Americans, are so quick to climb up the ladder in our careers, in our professions. But then sometimes what happens is we realize that our ladder is leaning up against the wrong wall. That sometimes we need to put our ladder on another wall. Nehemiah discovered that his ladder was on the wrong wall as God put in his heart a God-ordained passion and that he needed to move that ladder and put it on another wall and do what God had called him to do. I wonder if you have a ladder on the wrong wall this morning. I wonder if you have a ladder that has stayed on the wrong wall for a long time because you've been caught in the cage of responsibility, because you haven't taken seriously what God has placed upon your heart and called you to do, and you haven't acted upon it. I wonder where your ladder is, and whether it's in the right place. Maybe now is your time to break free, not only by identifying what your God-ordained passion is, but by acting on it, just like Nehemiah. I wonder if you can take a small step, like making an appointment with someone to talk to them, or by buying a book, or by enrolling in a class, or whatever. Taking a small step, because sometimes it's in the small steps that we take the greatest steps forward, recognizing that Rome wasn't built in a day. Don't get me wrong, the Bible says count the cost to plan to do something. But here's the thing that I've realized about followers of Jesus, and in the church especially, and that is that we overthink, that we overplan, 
that we overpray. And we get in this mentality of ready, aim, 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 and we never pull the trigger. We never act. But just imagine if you could chase the wild goose, that Holy Spirit that puts a passion on your heart that's from God, and that you could act upon it. Imagine the life and the significance and the power and the purpose that will be known in your heart. It's that power and that significance that Jesus came to bring. In 1910, a girl named Agnes was born in Albania. As a teenager, she felt called to ministry. She did her training in Ireland and India, and one day she approached her superiors and she said, I have three pennies and a dream from God to build an orphanage. Her supervisors kind of chuckled at her and said, you can't build an orphanage with three pennies. With three pennies, you can't do anything. Agnes smiled and said, I know, but with God's three pennies and God's dream, I can do anything. For 50 years, Agnes worked among the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta, India. In 1979, Agnes, who we know as Mother Teresa, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. How does a woman with three pennies and a dream from God go on to become maybe the most recognizable person on the planet a few years later after having just three pennies and a dream from God? How does someone like that then, by the end of her life, raise billions of dollars for the poor? I'll tell you how. She had a God-ordained passion that she discovered. And then she acted upon it. Even when the odds seemed stacked against her and all she had to her name was three pennies and a dream. Towards the end of her life, Mother Teresa was asked often, how can I make a difference with my life the way you have done with yours, Mother Teresa? She always answered that question that was repeatedly given to her the same way, with the same four words. She said, find your own Calcutta. Friend, where is your Calcutta? What is the passion that God has wired you specifically for, to do? It might not be to go build orphanages in India, but it might be to be the best dad or best mom that you can be to your children. It might be to go on a mission trip. It might be to do something that you never thought you were capable of. But whatever it is, as you identify it, as you act upon it, then you'll get rid of this cage of responsibility. And you'll live the life that Jesus intended for you to live. And you'll experience all that he has for you, a gift that's there for the asking. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much that you are the God who gives to us God-ordained passions. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us life abundant in Jesus Christ. Forgive us, O oh God, as we get caught up in the day-to-day -day things that just have to be done, and we neglect the greatest responsibility of following you. Lord, help us, we pray. Give us wisdom and discernment to find that thing that you would have us to do to be that person you would have us to be. And then to act upon it so that we can break out of the cage of responsibility and receive that life, that eternal life, that overflowing life 
that Jesus came to bring. For it's in his powerful name we pray. Amen.